Hi friends, Adam Flaherty here. This episode features an interview with a fellow dad named Robert Bailey. We recorded our conversation with Robert in mid-November, and we just learned today, uh, the day before the episode is set to release, that Robert has passed away. I just wanted you to have that context. Mark and I, along with our families, want to wish Robert's wife, Debbie, their son Parker, and their whole family peace during this very difficult, unthinkable time. If any of you have it in your hearts to make a donation, there's a GoFundMe link in our show notes, and the money will directly support Robert's family, and I'm sure that they would be very grateful for that support right now. Okay, here's our episode. Oh, hey, look. Hey, look who it is. It's Adam Flaherty. Adam Jehoshaphat Flaherty. Call back. <laughs> you got it, man. Call back to last episode. What is your name and how many children do you have? And what are their genders, if you care to disclose? <laughs> My name is Mark Checkett, and I am a dad to twin boy toddlers. What about, uh, what about you? What are you packing over there? My name is Adam Flaherty. I'm a father of two daughters who are... Almost seven and almost four. We're switching to almost the next number now? Wow. I haven't decided for sure, but I mean, they're getting really close to seven and four. We are the co-hosts of Modern Dadhood, an ongoing conversation about the joys, challenges, and general insanity of being a dad in this moment. If you're a regular listener, then you'll know that Modern Dadhood is generally a Fairly lighthearted show. We keep it kind of silly, maybe 60, 70% silliness. Even when we're discussing difficult issues around being a parent. I would agree. In this case, I would say there's no beating around the bush. This particular episode is a heavy one. We recently spoke with a fellow dad. His name is Robert Bailey. And we discussed something that most of us don't find pleasant to talk about. And that is facing one's own death. Yeah, it's difficult stuff to talk about, um, so matter-of-factly, like we do in this episode. But while a conversation about acknowledging and accepting your own impending death might feel dark, you know, we want Modern Dadhood to be a place where it's safe to open up about your fears, even if that's something that's uncomfortable for you to, to, to do or to listen to. And I also want to acknowledge that This subject matter is sensitive and is uncomfortable, but also that it's something that's a constant in Robert Bailey's life. He's living this. And so out of respect to Robert, in hopes that the episode can provide a little bit of an escape for him, we're opting to proceed with some positivity and lightheartedness that you would typically expect from modern dadhood. So on that note... Uh, I do actually have something really positive and exciting that I would like to share with you, Mark. Oh, you remember my brother-in-law, Chad. Chad McBad? I'm not even going to entertain it. (laughs) Chad Richardson was a guest on our show a few months ago talking about how he was preparing to Mm. become a brand new dad for the first time. Gearing up, gearing up for dadhood. How's he doing? 
He's good. Their son was born just recently. Brand new. Absolutely healthy. They're home and they're totally in in the thick of it, like with a newborn. Amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. That's wonderful news. Yeah. The the family psyched about it. We last weekend got to visit with them for a few minutes and see the baby through a glass door. Uh, But the reason I'm telling you this, aside from just to catch you and the listeners up on it, is I brought a recorder with me and I passed a mic through a small crack in the door and asked Chad just a few questions about what it's like being in this totally crazy period. And I wanted to play it back for you. That's I'm dude. I'm I'm thoroughly excited to listen to this. This is great. We just came down to see the brand new baby for the first time. I've got my older daughter here with me and we got to visit him through the door. How's, how's uncle Chad doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, definitely sleep deprived. Last time we talked about all this, I was a little, um, little cocky when I was like, Oh, I've, I've done jobs where like I've got little sleep and stuff, but the reality of it is it's tough, but we're good. We're really good. Tell us how old he is now. He is, let's see, today's Saturday. So he is nine days old. So you're just over a week into very little sleep. How are you doing with that stuff? Yeah. The first night that we were back home was really tough. Um, Now we've like separated schedule. I sleep kind of in the morning. She sleeps in the evening. I cover the nights. She covers the day. And then we kind of share our early evenings. I got to say, you sound remarkably well composed for being a week into fatherhood on, on, on such little sleep. If you asked me at all a couple of days ago, I would have sounded different. If you <laughs> asked me at a different time in the day today, I would have sounded different as well. How was the hospital experience considering the that it all happened during the pandemic? Um, that was pretty good. We just stayed in our rooms the whole time. Even small things like going to get water and ice, we had to rely on the nurses. And I have gained so much respect and admiration for nurses in the way that they work and operate. One thing that stands out is uh, they took them to the nursery the second night that we had them in the room because we were both just exhausted. And they're like, we can take them. We have to run some tests and then you guys can get some real sleep. So the nurse came and took them. And then we realized that we both missed him. Like we were were (laughs) weeping as we were falling asleep because he was out of the room, Um, but we needed it. We were just so overtired. And did you experience at any point in that process sort of a moment of maybe enlightenment or when it just really hit you that I'm a father now? I think like, while um, he was being born. It was like seeing him come out and being able to like see clearly through that all. It was a, a very intense moment that is burned into my memory. Well, we've been enjoying all the photos and FaceTiming and we can't wait to get our hands on him when it's safe to do that. But just so happy to be able to come down here and see him through the glass door today. And we couldn't be happier for you guys. So thanks for the update. You got it. Thank you so much for coming down. All right. Here's a question for you. Okay. I had one for you here, too, by the way. You have a question for me too? I don't believe it. No. Can you believe that I came prepared with a question for you today? Well, let me put mine on hold. I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Well, here, this conversation that we've been, been having, uh, got me, got me thinking back to my childhood. And I, I wondered if you could remember when was the first time you remember finally sort of understanding what death actually was like, what it meant Interesting question. 
I think I have, maybe it's an unusual first experiences with it. My parents were older when they had me. So I have three siblings who are in their mid to late fifties and Mm -hmm. I'm in my late thirties. And so my parents have always been a little bit older than the parents of my friends. So growing up, that was something that was on my mind, but that means that, you know, my siblings are older, um, aunts and uncles are older. They were great aunts and uncles. And there was this period of time in probably third, fourth grade, somewhere in there where I just had like a a grandmother on my mother's side, Mm. grandfather on my dad's side, and then like several great aunts and uncles that it seems like they all passed away within Mm. a year of each other. And in some cases within like a couple weeks of each other. And so I have fairly vivid memories of like, a lot of like going to funeral parlors and attending masses and going to wakes. And, and I think maybe as a result of that, it's always sort of been something in the back of my mind, you know, like I hope that I grow up to be an adult still having parents. Yeah. Oh, I think that my parents probably thought about that too, because my mother has told me like more than once that she didn't necessarily expect to be around to see me get married and have my own kids. Really? And so she's so glad that she gets to be a part of my daughter's lives. Yeah. What was your original question again? The original question was, when was the first time you really remember understanding what death was? I mean, you always, my four-year-old daughter understands that when somebody is dead, Mm -hmm. they're not present in your life anymore. You don't see them anymore. So I think that as soon as I was old enough to talk or, you know, communicate with people, you have the language to like convey that notion, but I probably didn't really understand it until I started losing family members. Yeah. I think everybody processes the idea of death and the grieving process in different ways. Mm. Do you worry about your own mortality? Hmm. I hadn't for a long time. But I will say that very recently, I have started just sort of thinking about my own mortality a little bit and thinking about like, you know, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, I'm going to die, too. Not that I had ever, not that I ever thought I'm invincible. I I never had that sort of cavalier attitude about my own mortality, but I I don't think I'd ever given it much thought. And I, I feel like I'm sort of cresting this this hill right, right now mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. in real time, as I'm talking with you, you know, where I'm realizing, you know, I'm realizing like, that's a thing. And before kids that had a, a, a different sort of feeling and, and meaning attached to it than it does with kids in the picture. I know that I found that when My first daughter was born, you know, seven years ago, almost. I definitely started thinking about death more regularly. And I'm sure that it was tied to, you know, now being responsible for someone else and taking care of someone else and providing for someone else. But I don't know if it was more about the amount of time that I have to spend with her or about her not having a dad after I'm Hmm. gone Hmm. for whatever reason, 
when I started having kids, things just sort of started to fall into that kind of perspective yeah. for me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it didn't happen quite so for me that connection i think took a little bit more time to 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 sink in but but i'm starting to feel that now and i think the same way like i think like my kids have a dad you know like that's still that's right. it's, it's a fucking weird thing to think you're the dad now it, you know and 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 that's like my dad passed away several years ago i'm already in that position where like i no longer have a dad and it's yep. still taking time it still shocks me sometimes when it when i think about that my children have a dad and they're going to think about me the same way that i think about my dad or maybe similarly but i i will say this something that i find comfort in i really think it's important i don't really know how to phrase this me having memories that i allow myself to feel and think about and share with other people is where you go after you die. You live on in the memories of the people that you've had an effect on in your life. That's kind of how I like to think about it. And so when you ask me, like, when I think about your own mortality, like, I think about it in terms like that. I'm going to die someday. And that's just a fact of, of life. But I would like to create some memories in my kids' lives or some memories for my kids that they will hold on to for the rest of their days. Just like I'm holding on to a whole bunch of really great memories of my dad for the rest of my time. That's a really nice way to look at it. And I think that that actually, that that's an interesting segue into our conversation with Robert. We live in a, an age now where so much more media is being created and collected all the time. If one of us, God forbid, died tomorrow, there's thousands of photos of us, on our spouses, <laughs> devices. We make a podcast and our <laughs> voices are forever sort of captured in this format, um, yeah. which will be wonderful for our families generations from now to have access to. Mm -hmm. But the reason I think that that is particularly relevant to Robert is because he is working intentionally to create a legacy, to build this, this set of memories for his son as his two-year-old son grows up. Yeah. Robert Bailey had a pretty standard life up until a couple of years ago. Uh, he and his wife were, were happily married. They had just adopted their son, Parker. And after some medical issues and misdiagnoses that Robert shares in our conversation, uh, he's diagnosed with stage four cancer. And his path since then has not been a walk in the park. It's really been kind of a roller coaster with lots of ups and downs and a lot of uh, discomfort and obviously an array of emotions. And Robert now knows that his time on earth is limited. And so that's why he's devoting a lot of the time that he has left to creating this legacy. Robert believes that he will pass before Parker turns three years old. So he's doing things that are going to keep his memory alive and also to spread awareness about bladder cancer and cancer in general. So 
why don't we listen back to our recent conversation with Robert Bailey? Robert, we want to welcome you to Modern Dadhood. Thank you so much for making the time to join us this afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. So uh, I want to ask you, and this is an honest question, how how are you doing in this moment? Yeah, I'm doing pretty shitty. Like, um, got my low red blood count, and then I've got, um, I'm dehydrated pretty bad. Um, I went in for a blood transfusion yesterday. So that helped a little, but not a lot. Well, I appreciate the honesty. Uh, I think we all tend to kind of go on autopilot when someone asks us how we're doing and, you know, kind of gloss it over with a good or a fine. And so the <laughs> the honesty is appreciated. Yeah, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm doing pretty shitty, but I, I should pick up in a couple of days. You said you had a blood transfusion. Is this something that you've gone through before? I've probably had about 10 or 15 Usually right after my treatments, I blood count drops pretty low. Like this weekend, I didn't get out of bed at all. Do you mind giving us, you know, just however much detail you want to give, Robert, really, like a little bit of information about your diagnosis? Um, Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I noticed a little over two years ago that I was had a little blood in my urine, um, and then I was starting to actually leak a little bit. Um, so I went to a urologist. Um, they said it was basically nothing. They did the PSA test. The PSA test came back normal. So they said, you know, um, just kind of keep an eye on it. That was when I lived in Charlotte. Then I moved to Nashville about two years ago. I uh, went to another doctor and um, did the same thing, but said basically I have to cath myself a couple times a day. Hmm. I was like, well, that doesn't sound right at all. It was getting worse at that point. At that point, I was not holding urine in at all at night. I went to go get another opinion, and that doctor said I had a neurogenic bladder. And I kept on getting into the hospital because my ureter, which is what connects your kidney to your bladder, was um, they had to keep putting stents in it because it was getting crushed. But they just kept on saying I had a neurogenic bladder for about a year, of going back and forth with this doctor who was supposed to be a good doctor. Uh, he was like, well, we're just going to have to remove your bladder. Uh. At this point, I already lost control of my bowels and the pain was like really intense. I could barely walk. I went to go get another opinion at Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the best urology hospitals in the world. After a couple of visits, they noticed the same thing, but they actually ended up taking a biopsy of my prostate. And then they found cancer. So then I found out that basically what was causing all my problems was a grapefruit-sized tumor in my abdomen. It connects from my pelvis to the base of my penis to my ureter to my bladder to my rectum and then up to my prostate. So I was pretty pissed because at that point now it's inoperable. We went to MD Anderson, um, which is in Houston, which is one of the best um, cancer hospitals in the country. You know, so they tried all their magic, but they couldn't get it to shrink. You know, I stayed in Houston for about five months. Um, We all lived in an RV, at an RV park while I was going through treatment, which was hell. Mm. But, um, and after they could do no more, we came back up here to Nashville to do treatment about 
two months ago, we found out that it has now spread to my lungs and my liver. So, um, so it's definitely getting worse, but it's never shrunk, really. It just, just kind of stayed the same. At this point, we're waiting for our next um, scan, and after that next scan, we might decide to just go on to, like, hospice care and just let it take its pain. Because, I, I mean, the treatments are killing me. I can imagine. I can imagine, Robert. Yeah. So you received some encouraging news to begin with. You thought it might be operable. And then at some point you were told that that wasn't going to be the case. And then it seems like time and time again through your journey, the information has been less and less in your favor. How do you even begin to process that? And would it have been better from the beginning if you didn't have that sense of encouragement? I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to hear. It takes a long time to sink in. Like, my, it just sunk into my, uh, with my wife, Debbie. She's just now accepting it. It's, it's hard to explain, you know? I'm at, like, I think most of it just sucks that, like, I don't get to see what happens, you know, with Debbie and Parker, my son. You know, like, I don't ever, I'm not going to see, like, what he's going to become and things like that. Those are the things that bother me more. And like me dying, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, since you brought up Parker, I'd love to learn a little bit about him. What What can you tell us about your son, Parker? So it's crazy. Um, you know, we can't have kids. We adopted him. We didn't even know we were going to be able to adopt. But we adopted him like we were there at the birth, and then we took him home from there. Wow. You know, and I mean, he's just... Just amazing. Like, I didn't think we were going to have a kid, you know? So I was just, like, so super stoked that I got a chance to be a dad. And then months later, it's just taken away from me, you know? Hmm. Um, I, I, don't, I don't get to be with him as much as I like to. Like, I don't have the energy. I mean, it sucks because you're sitting on the couch watching him play with Debbie and all that. You're like, man, I can't even get down there and do that. But, um, I mean, he's a smart kid. You know, I mean, he potty trained himself really young, likes to read, loves anything outside, loves mud puddles, hmm. loves getting dirty, you know, and just like the sweetest kid you'll ever meet in your life. What is his understanding of what is happening to you? Just that I'm sick. He, he doesn't understand that I'm not going to be here one day. It's going to happen probably before he's three that... He's just going to one day not have me around. He's really too young to understand that. He's going to be way too young to remember a lot of me. Jesus, that's... Robert, that's that's got to be so... I mean, I don't, I don't really have a, a, a an adjective for it. Difficult. Difficult doesn't do it justice, I'm sure. But that must be... That must be really difficult to deal with. Do you get tired of recounting the timeline and no no people tend to ask a lot of you know direct questions and i don't really tend to care i've always been i mean i'm a songwriter so i've always been a pretty open person so like there's usually not much that i don't care to talk about i've accepted that i'm going to die i'm not going to beat it what's exhausting is when other people don't accept that like 
Mm. You know, oh, you'll be fine. I'm not going to be fine. I'm dying. That's probably the most exhausting thing. Well, it does certainly seem like you're an open book about this. The fact that you're posting in the dad groups on Facebook, the fact that you've recorded this album of material that you're promoting, you're accepting invitations to have conversations like this one. It, it tells me that you have something to say. Yeah. I think that a lot of people kind of revert inward when they're faced with stuff like the physical pain and discomfort that you're in and, and faced with death. Why are you accepting invitations like this? Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important that people, Hey, you know, first kind of understand how precious life is, um, how great it is to be able to share it with your son or your daughter, you know, um, and to not take it for granted. Like, you know, most of the people I talk to, it just kind of opens their eyes. I'm like, you know, kind of understanding what you have around you and how easily it can be taken away from you, no matter how hard you worked for it. I feel like that's one of those things that sometimes people say, one of those sentences, kind of like the way Adam was describing how most people answer, how you doing? It's this throwaway, you know, we don't give it thought. We don't take the time in the moment to give it real thought. And sometimes I think with, you know, you hear people say, time is precious. And it's, it's, it's like a sentence that sometimes people say, and Obviously, it holds much more gravity coming from you. Can you tell us about some of the projects that you've done to preserve your legacy and to give him things to remember you by, even if he doesn't have long-term memories of specific interactions with you? Yeah, I, I wrote um, in my will, obviously, I left him a bunch of things and told him why they were close to me. Um, I just finished the album, both Parker and Debbie. And a bunch of Nashville recording artists kind of helped put it together. You know, I, I wrote a birthday card for every year until he's 21. Mm. So they, oh, I have something to open up. But I've wrote him a couple of letters as well. And I got a book that I need to continue on for sure. But, like, um, I got a book that asks a bunch of questions about, like, who I was and all that um, that I've been filling out slowly. Your album is called Legacy. And the songs that I've heard are beautifully written, beautifully recorded, and, and so meaningful, of course. Do you have a, a favorite song on that album? Probably two minutes. That was just one, because, like, everything with Parker is two minutes. Like, give me two minutes to do this. And, you know, it's just such a part of his personality now. You know, I just kind of wrote a song around that. So much Hey please daddy please Hey won't you get up And we can play outside If you'd like Hey I can drive my car Or we can ride my bike Daddy's really tired Yeah it's hard to move Daddy's really trying Maybe I'll get up soon Just two minutes daddy That's all I need Just two minutes For you and me Was the process of writing those songs and recording it, was that a cathartic process for you? A little bit. Um, it was a very emotional journey for me. Yeah. Really made me think even even more so about what I'm leaving behind. Yeah, the name of the album is Legacy. What does it mean to you to leave a legacy? 
have a fear that, you know, when he gets older, he's going to be like, you know, he wasn't my real dad. He didn't love me like a real dad did, you know, because I'm not going to be there to combat those types of feelings. So um, a lot of it is making sure I can try to get him to understand that I, I love him to death. I don't want him ever questioning just because he didn't know me, like uh, this was just some random guy that adopted me. He, he sure as hell was my son, you know, and that, you know, he's always going to be my son. You said recently in another interview that I saw, you said this, I've been a much happier person since I learned I was dying. I wonder, what do you, what do you mean by that? I don't let small things get to me anymore. I have bad days. I have bad weeks. I just don't let things kind of get in the way or make me angry. I don't get angry anymore. Like, I just try to take in everything that I have with what little time I have left. It's kind of weird. You just kind of start focusing on living as opposed to just living. I think there's this bit of a myth out there that men, we like don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And part of the idea behind this show was to illustrate that men are capable of having and showing those emotions. And here you are, Robert, in a situation that I can only imagine comes with some very intense emotions. And I guess the question is, how do you continue to as you put it, live, as opposed to just live, but live and enjoy life for what it is without letting these emotions loom over you. I think the emotions are there. I think they just evolve. You know, I've, I've just kind of learned to brush it off my shoulder if I don't want to deal with it. And I'm pretty angry that I'm dying. I'm very angry. But like, I, also, I don't want to be some angry guy that my wife remembers, you know, or my son remembers. Or, But I've learned to open up a lot more. I've learned to tell my friends I love them and let them know how much I appreciate them. And so I've kind of opened up emotionally. When you sit back and think about, like, how do you want to be remembered? I think you end up starting to change, like, how you behave. Being conscious of time... Robert, we wanted to give you the opportunity to share anything either for the listeners or for Parker, you know, when he discovers this down the road. Is there anything that you'd like to say that maybe you haven't said elsewhere or to reinforce something that you have said or written? Well, hey, I would say that time is precious and it can be taken away very quickly. I feel like I'm kind of lucky that I get to know when I'm going to die so I can kind of at least plan some things out because I was working like a dog. Like Debbie said, I became a much better father once I learned I was dying. I, I appreciate a lot more. Yeah, and then obviously if you're see any blood in your urine or leakage or anything, I mean, go to a doctor and don't take the first diagnosis you get if you don't necessarily agree with it. Thank you for that advice. I think that that's that that is something that everybody should be thinking about and aware of in terms of paying attention to their health and and seeing a professional when you know that something is not right with you, especially us men, right? 
Robert, we uh, we want to wish you and your family uh, happiness and peace. And we'll be thinking of you. And we hope that you're able to stay as comfortable and as positive as possible and, and as you want to be. Thank you so much. You guys have a great week. Once again, we learned as of the day before the release of this episode that the world has lost Robert Bailey. Mark and I feel extremely lucky that we had even just a brief time to get to know Robert. And it's very clear how much he loved his family and how proud he was to be a dad. I did promise that we were going to keep things lighthearted. So I, I have a, that's a thing now to share with you. <gasps> Lay it on me. Begin the sharing. Please. It's a good one. It's a fresh one. It's a freshy. It's a fresh thing. Uh-oh. It just happened this evening at the dinner table. And <gasps> just like that, it's a thing. Are you looking forward to this being a thing? Or are you dreading this becoming a thing? There's two sides. There, I have two competing emotions, oh. and you'll understand at the end of my story. Okay. All right. Hit me. So we're at the dinner table, and my four-year-old daughter has been just procrastinating at eating her food. She wants to snack mm. all day. She'd eat goldfish all day, but when it comes to a meal, she won't touch it. And she procrastinates, tries to run down the clock so that she doesn't have to eat anything, and then it gets to, like, bedtime. We had prepared... Grilled cheese, chicken soup, and a bunch of grapes that were all still connected. It's a good meal. Sitting on a stool. She had moved her chair out, brought in a stool. She's totally naked, which normally we wouldn't allow at the dinner normally, table. But normally you're the only one naked. At <laughs> yes, I'm the one that, that is allowed to be naked. Right. She's picking the grapes off the stems and dropping them into the soup. Whatever, as long as she'll eat it, you know, she can do whatever she wants. And... I'm like, I'm getting towards the end of my rope because we have to just keep reminding her to eat her food. Mm -hmm. And I think she can tell that I'm kind of pissed. And then, and then it happened. She looks at me and goes, daddy. She extends her, her hand down and goes, smell my finger. I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) Okay. I'm like, Oh, no, 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 no. But I have to know. I have to know where she's going with this. So I say, uh-huh. absolutely not. But what does it smell like? <laughs> <laughs> and she gets a big smile on her face and she goes, but. Okay. Sarah and I look at each other trying not to laugh. Oh. We send her to the bathroom to like go wash her hands. Mm-hmm. And she comes back and whatever we, you know, dinner continues on and we continue feeling frustrated that she's procrastinating. But, 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 but here I am now, like my daughter <laughs> dug her finger into her butt yep. and then wanted to punk me into smelling it. Classic. Smell my fingers kind of classic comedy. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Like disgusting. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. Mm hmm. Is a little part of me proud at the prank attempt, <laughs> you know, because smell my finger is, re- is actually a really funny prank. 
And so if that's a thing now in our house, Hmm. I think I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. You might want to warn guests. Yeah. I wouldn't allow her to be naked at the table with guests. I can't get behind butt picking, but smell my finger is really funny. It's funny. So that's a, um, that's a thing. That's a, that's a potential thing now in the Flaherty household. Smell my finger. <laughs> but. Well, friends, this finds us at the end of yet another episode of Modern Dad of the Podcast. So go out there on the internet, find us, moderndadhood.com. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and more. Save from charms. What? Remember the end of the blow pop commercial? Mm. That's a blow pop. Forget it. Anyway, subscribe. Word of mouth is very, very helpful to us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Modern Dadhood. And there's still time to order Mm. a fine Modern Dadhood t-shirt or Modern Dad hoodie. Oh, you want one. You want one. You need one. For someone you love for the holidays. You You need it. As always, we want to thank Casper Baby Pants and Spencer Albee for our theme music. To Pete Morse at Red Vault Audio. That's redvaultaudio.com for his wisdom for his talent and his good sense when it comes to all things audio. And also, well, why don't you say this? You always say this part. I'd like to say thank you to you for listening.